The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. They want something more. If the United Nations votes for partition, we'll have the whole Arab world on our backs. Our only hope then is an alliance between Ergun and Haganah. An alliance to fight? Of course. The minute Haganah adopts our policy of fighting instead of talking, an alliance between us becomes automatic. You're not being fair, Uncle. When it comes to fighting, Haganah has lost more lives than Ergun. We fight to defend ourselves. Or to capture positions that we can occupy and hold. When you attack it, just to spread terror. Your duty is done. You've given me the official line. What about you, Ari? Forget Haganah for one moment and tell me what you think. I think these bombings and these killings hurt us with the United Nations. A year ago, we had the respect of the whole world. Now when they read about us, it's nothing but terror and violence. It's not the first time this happens in history. I don't know of one nation, whether existing now or in the past, that was not born in violence. Terror, violence, death. They are the midwives who bring free nations into this world. Good morning, London. It's Thursday, April 24th, 2014. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9, where we'll be with you from now till noon. Not right wing. It's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. And welcome to our show today. We're 519-661-3600 is the number to call or write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Today we've got a bit of an eclectic mix of topics, although there's a common theme, I guess. In our final short quarter, I wanted to just make a few comments on this past uh, Toronto 420 um, weekend event, Catch a Fire in Toronto. Boy, what an event. Really went well. Also want to talk about leadership in the third quarter and reign of error. What kind of governments are we really dealing with looking into our immediate future? And to begin off with, I think I wanted to start off with... Uh, an article dealing with the middle class, which I think most of us consider ourselves a part of. So, um, if uh, you know, today I'm going to try and integrate many of the issues and topics we've been discussing over our past several shows, in the hopes of painting a larger picture of where we are politically speaking in the province and where we're headed. It's an eclectic mix of topics, to be sure, but uh, with our usual common theme: individual freedom. We'll end the show today with a brief comment uh, contrasting past weekend's 420 pot celebration protests held in Toronto and London. Also, leadership and Kathleen Wynne. Do you really understand what she's saying to you in those TV and radio ads, or do your eyes just glaze over in dismissal? Or are you a true supporter? And, of course, in our second quarter, is the mess Ontario's economy is in just caused by a reign of error, or is it something more sinister than error? Ontario Premier Kathleen Wynne is probably best known for her apologies over how her government has governed, or failed to govern, yet is accelerating the very path of bad policies she, apo she apologized for with uh, regarding her government's current intentions. But first, are you a member of the middle class? Free Press columnist Goldwyn Emerson thinks you need protection, and that the government should provide you with it. Now, 
having read his article, I have to say this guy is like 100% on the side of Kathleen Wynne and her liberal government's plans. Whether he votes so or not is not the point. But his advocacy in his April 5th London Free Press column certainly would be on side with Wynne. But you'd never guess it from the sound of it. And I thought his comments were rather interesting since I hear them a lot from a lot of people. Some elements of these are in so many people's minds. And so I just wanted to go through them and comment along the way. And this, again, is Goldwyn Emerson from his April 5th column. He writes, uh, Government must protect the middle class. Our free enterprise system has developed over the years to provide freedom of choice and to promote hope and optimism for those who are willing to work hard and be responsible and trustworthy. I agree with that, but actually it gave them a lot more than hope. It actually raised their real standard of living in a way unprecedented in human history. So it was a lot more than just hope. But he continues, citizens who succeed best in a capitalist free enterprise environment usually possess qualities that enable them to, quote, get ahead in life. They're motivated to improve their chances of success for themselves and for their offspring. They strive to have a better life, experience fulfillment, and to have more satisfaction than they would otherwise have realized in their lives. Now, I think in this paragraph, he's actually talking more about business within a free enterprise system, not the free enterprise system itself, which is basically just freedom. Then he writes, whether people are rich or poor, there's a strong ethical component that motivates them to improve the conditions in which they find themselves. And I agree there. That's, yes, of course, it's called rational self-interest, and it drives all human motivation and action. And then he continues, most of us want to make a living better for ourselves and for those we love. The ethical part of the free enterprise system is that we require just and fair opportunities to make our efforts work for us. In an ethical system, it seems appropriate that when we do the right things and work hard, we deserve to be rewarded. In a free enterprise capitalist system, the success of the middle class is important. There are a number of reasons the middle class is likely to be of greatest importance to successful capitalism. Now, here again, a term like successful capitalism is a little bit oxymoronic, and it's and it's turned the turn, term from a condition of freedom into one of materialism, which is exactly what capitalism is not, although a lot of people think it is, because it results in the most material goods. But that's not the reason it does. It does so because it's not materialistic. It's actually all about freedom. So he writes, first, the middle class are the most numerous. While the money required to support entrepreneurial ventures comes from the upper wealthy class, the labor required to turn projects into practical products like automobiles, houses, food products, etc., is provided by middle-class workers. Secondly, it is, it is this large middle group who will purchase the finished product in sufficient quantities to warrant the capital investment devoted to various enterprises and developments. Thirdly, the middle class as a whole pays the largest part of taxes. Fourthly, standards of living in most democratic countries are measured by the success or lack of success of the middle class. Let's take a look at how the middle class is faring in Canada. Those who remain unemployed, and that includes many, are falling behind financially. There are over 1.5 million Canadians who are working part-time but not able to keep their families out of a gradual decline towards poverty. This despite Statistics Canada's recent reports that those fortunate to own their own house find it has increased in value. In addition to these conditions, there's over half a million Canadians working full-time whose incomes continue to slip below the basic cost of living. 
Some cities across Canada have done calculations as to what level of wages would provide a living wage in their areas. Uh-oh, here, here, here it comes. For example, in Hamilton, workers would need to be paid approximately $15 per hour to maintain a standard of living that would prevent them from falling into the poverty level. A living wage varies with each community depending upon the cost of housing, heating, and food. In Vancouver, it would require nearly $20 an hour to stay above the poverty level. Governments at all levels that cut back on benefits exasperate the problems of poverty. In an effort to cut expenses, governments may overlook added pressure among the middle-class workers due to cutbacks. At the federal level, employment insurance for the unemployed is now harder to access. Increased costs occur for passport renewals, postal costs, gasoline, fuel continue to rise. Soon the eligible age for old age security pension will rise from 65 to 67. At the provincial level, energy costs in Ontario are likely to rise considerably in the coming years. Apart from government services, the cost of transportation, home appliances, food, and other necessities of life continue to increase. What does he mean, apart from government services? The cost of those isn't increasing? Is he not reading the paper that he's talking about? In general, the middle class seems to have to work longer and harder just to keep up. And that's true of everyone, I think. Even then, many are falling behind and joining the ranks of the poorer lower class. The ethical issue for the middle class is their willingness to work longer and harder to give their children and grandchildren the opportunities they will need. For those in government, the ethical question is how can the middle class be protected from falling behind and joining the ranks of the poor? And that's uh, basically his column and his comments. Now, the first problem I found was with the headline, Government Must Protect the Middle Class. In reality, I think it's the middle class that needs to be protected from government. It's all the government help that is killing everyone, regardless of so-called class, a completely meaningless term in a free society of contract, meaning only, you know, as a jail sentence in the sense that someone is in a given class, was put there by some pre-existing and non-changeable structure of some sort. This is only possible in a non-capitalistic, non-free environment. By using the word class, the writer, whether consciously or not, but certainly by default, necessarily places them in opposition to each other. If you're in one class, you know, you're opposed to the other class, lower, middle, upper, and in so doing, must create those classes according to some arbitrary financial standard or political standard. Now, as author Isabel Patterson reminded us so well in her book, The God of the Machine, and I'll be referring, it's amazing how many references I've made to that today because she was sort of right into this frame of thinking. She says, in a true class society, classes are the several layers of a stratified order. Class is nothing but a horizontal relative position, just like poverty, right? Poverty is all relative. If there are no rich people, people, there can't be any poor people. Therefore, one class cannot displace another, she writes, nor abolish it by action as a class. When and if classes exist, the persons occupying a given relative position belong to the denominated class. Conceivably, the parties might be transposed, but the classes would remain as before. Whatever is at the top is at the top. Whatever is below is below. You can't change that, right? (laughs) So what you say is that whatever happens to be in the middle, that's the middle class. And you just go by, I guess, numbers. You can just make it up as you go along. But that's what they mean by class. Since the class system is imposed, she writes, on the creative energy to check its flow, it is inevitably liable to internal disturbance. The energy may cause a cleavage between the upper and lower strata. 
by which they will break into violent opposition. This is a genuine class war. And, of course, this perfectly describes Kathleen Wynne's College of Trade Barriers, which we spoke about last week. The unspoken barrier being erected specifically to create a class distinct and separate from other workers. And yet the economics of a free society is a classless one. Here's a bit of a scary couple of articles. Obama, Obama's chickens have come home to roost, reads the headline of Michael Goodwin in the April 1st National Post. Obama's sixth year in the White House is shaping up as his worst, he writes, and that's saying something. Nothing important has worked as promised, and there's every reason to believe the worst is yet to come. The view from his faculty lounge has no space for reality. Anything that doesn't fit the grand plan is dismissed as illegitimate. No president can win them all, but Obama's foreign policy record is unblemished by success. <laughs> Obamacare now enjoys a mere 26% approval, a poll finds. It is proving so unworkable that the White House has given up defending it as written and instead simply changes key provisions when they prove impossible to implement. A Caesar at home and a Chamberlain abroad, his reign of error cannot end soon enough, nor can it end well. And that was Michael Goodwin in uh, the National Post, which was reprinted from the New York Post, by the way. And then there was this very haunting full-page National Post editorial of February 8th, written by um, Conrad Black, and it was headed, This Anemic Recovery. And some of his points are just chilling, and I think he's hitting them right on the head. He says, The failure of most Western economies to bounce back from the 2008 to 2010 recession with traditional levels of job creation, despite completely unprecedented debt issuances and money supply increases in the U.S., shows again that we are in uncharted economic waters. From the mid-18th century to the First World War, there was little inflation in Great Britain. And from the end of the U.S. Civil War to the First World War, there was little inflation in Canada or in the United States. Since the Great Depression, all the world's currencies have been steadily removed from any discipline or value yardstick and are now not valued in any relative or absolute way except compared to each other. They're all being devalued together. Ronald Reagan revived the American economy with increased defense spending, always the most effective form of economic stimulus as it involves high-technology investment and reduces unemployment and spurs adult education, and something Canada should have more of, he writes, and income tax cuts and tax reform. The world followed the American recovery as usual, and it was a golden decade following the American-led abrupt and bloodless American victory in the Cold War. But that was then, and this is now. Under Obama, he writes, the United States, now listen to this, the United States has almost tripled its money supply in five years. The accumulated deficit, federal, has risen from $10 trillion after 233 years of American national independence in 2009 to nearly $18 trillion now, and all that has been purchased is a 2% growth rate and a reduction of unemployment to where it was five years ago. Think about that. Tripling the money supply, doubling the debt, and all you got was this little pity 2% increase. Just trying to keep your head above water. Brian Mulroney is finance minister, he writes. Michael Wilson realized that the way forward was taxes on sales and services and a reduction of income taxes. Bingo, that's the right formula. Stephen Harper, Jim Flaherty, the late now, and the Americans have failed to get the message. 
In this, as in almost all fields of public policy, what we need is emancipation from hidebound thinking and rigid ideology and a little creativity. We're not seeing much of it now, he writes. The Canadian political parties are like three famished dogs tugging at the same threadbare carpet. And so, so true he is. And with that, we're going to go into our first break now where we'll hear a little bit about uh, democracy and power and how so many of our politicians view it. But we're going to do this by my rules, Jim. We're taking Max alive. Oh, great. So we'll be high and mighty and dead. That's all you know, isn't it? Kill or be killed. You're not saving Chester's Mill. You're eating this town alive. You have no idea what it takes. We do this, and then you and I, we're finished. I spent the last two weeks trying to convince myself that we want the same thing. We do? No. I want a future. I want something that I can build towards. You want a kingdom. This town needs a leader. Not your kind. Made a few mistakes. But nobody loves this town better than I do. No, you love power, Jim. That's it. Now we take down Max, and we are done. And then I'm going to do whatever I have to do to make sure that I knock you off of your throne. sum up. This year we explored the failure of democracy, how the social scientists brought our world to the brink of chaos. We talked about the veterans, how they took control and imposed the stability that has lasted for generations since. You know these facts, but have I taught you anything of value this year? Hmm? You, why are only citizens allowed to vote? It's a reward. What the Federation gives you for doing federal service. No. No. Something given has no value. Look, when you vote, you are exercising political authority. You're using force. And force, my friends, is violence. The supreme authority from which all other authority is derived. Uh, my mother always said violence never solves anything. Really? I wonder what the city fathers of Hiroshima would say about that. You. They probably wouldn't say anything. Hiroshima was destroyed. Correct. Naked force has resolved more issues throughout history than any other factor. The contrary opinion, that violence never solves anything, is wishful thinking at its worst. People who forget that always pay. Rico, what's the moral difference, if any, between a civilian and a citizen? A citizen accepts personal responsibility for the safety of the body politic, defending it with his life. A civilian does not. The exact words of the text. But do you understand it? Do you believe it? I don't know. Of course you don't. I doubt anyone here would recognize civic virtue if it reached up and bit you in the ass. 
<laughs> Ouch. <laughs> uh, very interesting discussion, interesting di- distinction between citizen and civilian. Of course, that's from the, the movie Starship Troopers, and what an interesting uh, analysis of how the social people just kind of destroyed their society, all the social thinkers, and it took the, the war vets to put everything back together and, and the critical view of what democracy actually is. You don't see that too often. And I guess people's confusion about government could be reflected in this letter, very brief, that I found in the free press written by a young lady named Tiffany from Beamsville. Stop government waste, reads the headline in a letter to the editor of London Free Press of April 1st. And she writes, I'm not yet 20, and I realize how much trouble our province is in. I have the incentive to work hard and get an education. I don't want to lose half of my pay because of someone's mistakes. More taxes is not what we need. What we need is the government to know that fiscal responsibility matters, she writes. And I agree, but you know what? She's doing the same thing that I hear so many people do. They think that the government is making mistakes. As someone told me last week, uh, what was the word or the phrase? It's not a bug, it's a feature. (laughs) The mistakes that government makes. And this is the the point I've been trying to get get at over the past few weeks, that the things that we look at our politicians and say, well, you know, they made an error here and an error there. They're reigning by error. No, they're reigning and making these, quote, errors on purpose. To them, they're not errors. And that's hard for people who see them as errors to adjust to. Very interesting. And, you know, this has happened in history before. Some governments actually went out of their way to keep their people poor and destitute. Isabel Patterson in her God of the Machine writes, there was once a government which really prohibited gold and kept none itself in the belief that gold was bad for people. That was Sparta. But the Spartans believed that comfort, convenience, industry were bad and work was ignoble. The Spartans used iron for money because nobody could carry enough of it around for general exchange. The object was to keep the nation poor, to keep the citizens on a bare subsistence economy. And the plan succeeded perfectly. And yet I imagine if, if uh, you, you know, Tiffany lived at that time, she might be writing a letter to the editor of the time and saying, geez, I don't know why they're making so many mistakes. <laughs> and it's pretty much the same with socialist and collectivist governments today, except for one critical thing, notes Patterson. Quote, but the rulers of Sparta were willing to remain poor themselves. The modern despots do not wish to be poor themselves. They wish to grab every luxury and industrial eco- that an industrial economy can supply. What they want is to keep the producers poor by taking the product and, doing a l- and, g- and doling a little back again for subsistence, she writes. Now, of course, inflation is the means by which most governments do this inflating the currency of the nation. Everybody, you know, even our government says, well, a 2% inflation rate is, is a healthy rate. It's actually not. It's a very sick rate, and it, we, we shouldn't even be there, and we shouldn't be afraid of deflation. Could have spent a whole show on that. Got some stuff here on that, but that's another show. And, of course, Obama himself has tripled the U.S. money supply during his rule alone, and I, I think that's criminal in the extreme. He and all those who supported this massive inflation should be sitting right beside Bernie Madoff with a sentence hundred times longer than Madoff. What the heck's he in jail for if we're letting the president run out and do this kind of stuff? When paper currency is depreciated, writes Patterson, the difference has to come out of somewhere. And the main cut, get this, and it's always here, in wages. 
The fact is that heavy government expenditures must always be taken from the working man's wages. There is no other possible source. That's that middle, middle class that uh, Emerson was talking about. But the, depreci- the, the, sorry, the depreciation in currency comes out of wages immediately. Whatever anybody gets in his pay envelope will simply buy him that much less in goods. Conversely, increased production raises wages even though the sum of money is the same. It will buy more, end quote. Now, did you all hear that? Might be the most important economic lesson of your life. Think about it. If you really want your standard of living to go up, you don't need to have constant pay increases. You know, you don't need to exert disproportionately extra effort. Regular wage increases are unnecessary. More dollars changing the same or fewer goods will not make you better off, other than possibly the relativity of being better off than someone with less money than you at a particular point in time. In a free enterprise economy, explains Patterson, the products first put on the market as luxuries tend steadily to come within the reach of everyone. We'll have an example of this in the second half of the show. And are then regarded as necessities. That is one general benefit of considerable private fortunes, which must be invested for income, which means increased production. Aside from the immediate loss caused by currency inflation, the worker is deprived of a repository of value. Whatever he gets, he cannot save any part of it for the future. It is in depreciable paper currency, end quote. Now, this is one of the root causes of government pension schemes, I think. You know, having already destroyed each individual's means to save for his or own, own future needs, you know, inflation and income taxes being the primary causes, the government knows that no individual could possibly keep up with the government's own claim against that individual's wealth. So the government itself promises to look after us in our old age. But there's a catch to this Ponzi scheme. In order to support a growing retirement population that's growing along with the similarly growing government debt and deficit caused by the previous generation's unpaid for spending, the government has to further tax or further inflate the currency in order to deliver on its promise. And what this means for the average guy who's making an average wage explains Patterson, it's like this, quote, it makes the worker helpless. He can only live from day to day with an expectation of getting less and less as time goes on. Any of this sound familiar to anyone? Well, now you know the cause. So how do we get into this mess in the first place? Well, to put it as one elderly open line caller said a while ago, I heard, he said, well, we listen to the snake oil salesman. Yeah. Well, there's no better snake oil salesman than Ontario Liberal Premier Kathleen Wynne here herself, following in the footsteps of the master, Dalton McGuinty. The scariest thing about politics, I think, is watching how easily the incredible vast majority of voters are so susceptible to buying the snake oil because they really don't know the difference between that and whatever it is they think that they're getting. But always, that the snake oil salesmen also have to be snake charmers, don't they? They're all such nice people, they say. They all have the charm to sell this pure poison of theirs. There's really no one reason why they get away with it. Um, I think there's a few. For example, one, some don't know the poison from the medicine, and that's usually the voters. And then there's two. Others see themselves as beneficiaries of the poison, and that would be like the unions and the government employees, politicians, and those who hold government-granted monopolies or the like, something in that department. 
And then, of course, there's a third category, still others who openly and knowingly support the poison itself. And that would be most of our elected officials, particularly in the leadership, because leadership says win is what it's all about. So just a warning before we go to our next break. When we return on the other side of our upcoming CHRW messages and updates, you'll be hearing not one, but two Ontario Liberal Kathleen Wynne election ads that were brought to my attention online this week. In one of the ads, Wynne targets the NDP. In the second ad, progressive conservatives. In the TV version of these ads, you would see Wynne uh, jogging just like David Peterson did when he jogged his seat into the hands of NDP Marion Boyd way back when, along a road where there are no cars or people in sight on a kind of a gray, grayish day. The ads are, I think, despite my disagreement with them, very well done, even though they, you know, outrage me. In any case, uh, it's a classic snake oil sales charmer, and that's what this one is. And this next clip we're going to be hearing might sound a little familiar if you listen to our Star Trek review a couple weeks ago, but it kind of makes the point, doesn't it? And we'll be back after these breaks. All right, gentlemen. Ready? Uh, something's not sitting right in my gut about this, sir. Well, your gut may be right, Scotty. We'll find out soon enough. Treating someone with respect with whom we philosophically disagree is an intriguing strategy. It will be interesting to see how he responds should we not return his property. Well, we may have no choice, Spock. Locked on, sir. Energize. I'm Captain James Kirk. Welcome aboard the Enterprise, Southern Hunter. Captain Kirk, it's the honor to board your fair ship. It's an honor to have you, sir. Oh, no, 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 no. You're the captain. I'm just but uh, a small, simple businessman. It's a shame I can't stay longer. I'm delighted to hear you say that. We've prepared a dinner in anticipation of your arrival. We'd love to know more about you and your people. <laughs> I've never been the one to turn down a free meal, much less in uh, the company of these revered men. <laughs> This is my Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Leonard McCoy, my Chief Engineer, Lieutenant Commander Montgomery Scott, and my First Officer, Commander Spock, will uh, escort you to dinner personally. Welcome. Very good. Lead on, Mr. Spock. Spock. Yes, of course. I'll join you shortly. Take as much time as you want, Captain. Now that was unexpected. He seems nice. Put us late, Trader. There's a conventional wisdom that says leaders shouldn't involve themselves in negative ads. Well, I would never condone a personal attack on my opponents. But I believe if you're going to criticize their policy and record, you should stand by what you say. Unlike the NDP, I believe in order to create jobs, business, small and large, needs to be a trusted partner of government, just like labor needs to be. The last time the NDP were in office, one out of eight of us was on welfare. We just can't afford to go back to that. I believe in facing difficult decisions and investing in roads, bridges and transit. But the NDP rejects a realistic plan to do that because it's not politically safe and they won't support an Ontario retirement pension plan. This is not about politicking. 
It's about finding ways to do what's in the best interest of the people of this province. To me, that's what leadership is. I'm Kathleen Wynne, and I stand behind this message. I don't believe leaders should hide behind ugly personal attack ads or peddle untruths about their opponents. And I don't believe voters like it either. I do believe if you have something critical to say about your opponent's record, it should be about facts. And you shouldn't be afraid to stand by what you say. Tim Hudak and the Conservatives don't support Labour in this province. That's a fact. His plan is to drive down wages by weakening unions. In short order, he's promised to fire 10,000 education workers and cut billions from our health care. He'll cancel job-creating partnerships with business. And he voted against a plan to create jobs for youth. All of this is on the record, and all are exactly the wrong ideas for our economy if Ontario is to create opportunity for people. If Tim Hudak wants to play politics, that's his choice. My focus is on doing what's right for the people of this province. That's what leadership is. I'm Kathleen Wynne, and I stand behind this message. <laughs> and I'm Bob Metz, and I'm sitting in front of the message Kathleen Wynne stands behind. And it's a message of pure destruction and mayhem. If you don't recognize that when you hear it, then you're part of the problem. Here's one of our leaders of a political party in Ontario who's basically telling us that she's going to be a bully and thug, and she's outright telling us so. Yet what too many continue to hear is the voice of a very nice person who has our sincere interests at heart. You know, oh, the irony. I actually had to label Wynne's two ads for identification purpose only, mind you, as her anti-NDP and anti-Hudak ads, even though she talks about not wanting to do attack ads, you know. Uh, But at least the ads did tell us what she was for, and that's enough to scare the pants off anyone who has the slightest idea of her plan of horror. You know, I'm reminded, uh, I just had this brought to my attention on Monday, April 14, Kathleen Wynne tweeted the following post to her Twitter account, quote, Stand with us as we make the right choices. Stand with us as we lead. Stand with us as we build a better future, end quote. And I couldn't believe it. Right underneath, Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever retweeted right under her post the following, quote, Sit down. Shut up. Get out of the way. Get your hand out of my wallet and let me pursue the future I choose for myself. End quote. <laughs> apparently, it's important to keep your message short and to the point when you're on twi- Twitter. And also, apparently, in political party ads. So, well, if you believe that she doesn't condone personal attacks, well, that's, that's your problem, not hers, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. But the scariest thing she said in that first ad was talking about how she thinks that business needs to be a trusted partner of government and how labor needs to be a trusted partner of government. This is perhaps the scariest and most offensive thing I've heard of an Ontario politician advocate out loud in a long, long time. But I'm going to get to that a little bit later. In the second ad, um, you know, she talks about Tim Hudak. Tim Hudak and the Conservatives don't support labor in this province, and that's a fact. His plan is to drive down wages by weakening unions, she says. Well, unions are anti-labor organizations. I've talked about that many times on this. That's why they're always in favor of more unemployment, keeping other people out of work. In fact, we had a lot of union reps in this neighborhood going around saying that we own the jobs. Even when the jobs don't exist, by God, they own them. Weakening unions does not drive down wages, though. 
government spending does drive down wages, as Isabel Patterson explained earlier, and as we'll see a little later again. And of course, she complains that Hudak was going to fire 10,000 education workers. You know, but that's in a school system where the schools I hear are already half empty. What, what's that about? Is he, is he really going to do any sort of change, or is just that what the government already has planned? And then she says, Hudak will cancel job-creating partnerships with business. This is no doubt a reference to the College of Trade Barriers, and it has been Wynne's greatest political gift to the Ontario PCs. They're on tour saying that they'll scrap the college, and that's a great policy, although I don't really believe they're going to do it. But it gives them one niche into the market. They finally got something that you could vote for if you believed in the promise. So thank you, Kathleen Wynne. You gave the PCs something they can actually be against without having to be for anything. And, of course, last week I explained why I personally don't believe the PC promise. But that's just me. And uh, she also says if Tim Hudak wants to play politics, that's his choice. Well, I don't think it's his choice. I think that's his job as party leader. He has no choice but to play politics. And it sounds like Wynne's going beyond politics and wants to get into business and labor as well, which is not her prerogative. So as you can see, she's doing it all on purpose. There's no shame at at all involved here. She's actually proud about her views, about how not only government, which is the proper scope of a politician, but about how business and labor should be run, which is not the proper scope of any politician. At that point, politician becomes criminal. It requires a continual progressive violation of life, liberty, and property to create the state dictatorship that's sold as a partnership. There's no such thing. Any partnership with government is an impossibility simply because of the sheer lack of equality and rights. The government has all the guns. Business and labor have none and must rely on an absence of guns, on on persuasion and on voluntary exchange in order for them, business and labor, to even exist as such. You can't call them that until they're in that environment. If you're in a partnership, quote-unquote, with government, you're really no longer in business or in labor, Uh, not by definition, let alone in reality. I'm reminded of uh, Leonard Peikoff's great comment at the University of Toronto way back in debate 84, uh, 1984, and I'm paraphrasing here. You know, he said, we have to control business, argued the unions. We have to control the unions, argued business. And Hitler said, you're both right. We have to do both. We'll have to have total control. If Wynne now believes that labor should also be in partnership with government, then that might explain why so many other unions are now starting to wake up, other than Sid Ryan, and have been saying that they're going to be opposed to Wynne's plan. And of course, business is already on record opposed to things like the College of Trades. So here we have a situation. Government's supposed to be the referee, the police, the lawmaker. And to do that, it cannot be a partner with anyone. Can you understand that? That's not workable. Like the law itself, government needs to be blind in this regard, economically speaking, or it can't be a government. What's it governing if it's in partnership? What, self-government? Oh yeah, that's going to work well. The Ontario budget is supposed to be tabled one week from today. That's only the you know, the higher probability of an Ontario election being triggered before next year, but it's still low. And by the way, some people I've heard have noticed that Wynne has been handing out government grants and subsidies around lately, and this leads many of them to believe that an election is an immediate offering. Uh, offering. But the reality is, especially during minority governments, that sometimes a lot of that spending is being done to actually postpone or prevent an election, right? <laughs> and so that's really the point. Uh, 
Now, that's all I have to say on win. Uh, but calling an election, I have to tell you, is a deadly, deadly game. If I have time to, to get into that later in the show, I might, but I don't. watching the clock right now. I want to make sure I get most of this in. Now, here's a sidebar lesson in wealth creation and how technology is always the key to our future, our good future. Remember that lack of creativity that Conrad Black referred to in his commentary we looked at earlier? Well, here are a couple of seemingly unrelated to that issue of job creation, but very important. You know, technology changes so fast that a growing number of people, it seems, aren't even bothering to keep up with it anymore. I know in my own personal case, I actually managed to skip a few technologies that were outdated before I even would have considered them as an option, CDs being one. I I went straight from from vinyl to DVD and people and then past that. First time I ever had to deal with CDs was when I started doing this show here at Just Right. I remember we used to have to burn our weekly audio bites to a CD each week. Today it's flash sticks or just send it online, right Ed? That's how we do it now. They're awesome because they're so practical, small and functional. And Facebook usage numbers are apparently declining. No, no doubt many have heard that Windows XP operating system is no longer being, quote, supported, effective April 8th of this month. Time to move on to the next level of computing platforms. Each new advance in technology affects the previous ones, and strangely, sometimes even competes with them, further fragmenting markets. And that can be a good or a bad thing, depending on your needs and purposes. Uh, funny, I spoke to Al Pervin on CJBK Radio yesterday about whether the print version of the free press would be missed uh, should it ever disappear and be totally replaced online. It was just speculating talk. He was motivated by an American st- uh, statistic report that showed that radio revenue has for the first time beat out print newspaper revenue by almost a, of a f- of a factor of four to one. Is that for real? I'm not sure if I heard that right. Personally, I've never seen the print versus online debate as an either-or. I think each form has its advantages and disadvantages. I have to admit that I was actually surprised and alarmed by the number of people who call to say they don't even have a computer, or that if they do have some various technologies, they use them very minimally. People apparently are still going through a major adjustment to the new technology of news delivery and communications. And so, you know, it's a, when we go into our next break in a little while, we're, we will hear an audio bite from a very early episode of the 60s futuristic cartoon show, The Jetsons, if you remember that one. And I have to comment before on that because I saw something on that episode that reminded me of a story Isabel Patterson told about how the automobile came into commercial being. But first I want to say something about the Jetsons and computers and the Internet. I've commented on this before, that how amazing it was, how few, if any, science fiction versions in the past projected anything like the Internet as being part of the future. Star Trek even missed the ball on that and didn't get around to integrating the concept to some of its later episodes, the ones that were produced after the real Internet came into being. It's kind of like you could sit there and say, hey, Marge, check it out. Star Trek's finally catching up to where we are actually in real life today. But I can't think of too many who would have predicted its impact, despite all of the other relatively accurate technological predictions some of these same writers made. So i got to tell you, I was surprised to see in an early episode of The Jetsons about the closest thing anyone at the time of that period, 1960s, projected regarding the Internet, uh, you know, that ever appeared on a show. But it had one major fault. There was no Internet connection, either hardwired or wireless. But there was George Jetson sitting at his computer, checking out the events of the day, very much like we would have seen many do today. Except everything he saw on his screen display 
wasn't sent to him by wireless tech or even by wire, but delivered to him by way of a disc, and they called it his daily newspaper. And, uh, you know, that might become another trend in the future if the discs could overcome copyright issues and other such matters, although I don't see that happening. But everything he saw on his screen came from whatever particular disc he, he was putting into it. But what was interesting in the Jetsons audio bite that we'll hear a little later is how George could go on his computer and check out the news, entertainment, and sports very much the way we would today. On the Jetsons, they didn't use their computer to talk to each other. Apparently, they all had other telephone monitors that they used in the traditional style of a phone. For me, this is all very symbolic of how a society slowly adapts to change, always having to relate to some aspect of a previous understood technology and then to project it into the current technology. And it's always been that way. Before people could even comprehend what an automobile or a car was, it had to be explained to them in terms of a horseless carriage. You'd be amazed at how useless and impractical the automobile actually was when it was first invented. And again, Isabel Patterson writing in The God of the Machine, quote, Related accurately, the story of the development of motor cars for general use has elements of comedy. First, various inventors and engineers put together a lumbering contrivance nobody could want except to gratify his taste for mechanics. Presently, it was, quote-unquote, improved into a luxury. That means it was still expensive, inconvenient, and of no practical use because there were no suitable roads, no gas stations, no repair shops. And a car was more than likely to leave the owner stranded a long way from home and as an object of derision. And those were called the pleasure cars. When the cheap car got into mass production, the manufacturer saw that he had to have a correspondingly extensive market. He needed somebody to buy the cars. If the working man was to buy a car, wages must be higher. The manufacturer raised wages voluntarily and so forced other employers to do the same. Where, in such a sequence, would any government have had the same inducement? Nowhere, she writes. And that, again, I have to say, you know, that, that same principle applies to all things, economic and technological. We use the same kinds of horseless carriages, you know, sort of icons on our computers just to relate to something we use in our past or something we were very familiar with. And that's called progress, which is the opposite of political progressiveness. It's almost impossible for me to imagine or comprehend the true destructiveness to the, that creative and wealth-creating process we just described, that politicians like Wynne and all the communist fascist philosophies inflict on that process. It is incalculable. It's wealth and life-destroying, and it's done on purpose. But, you know, she's very nice for a slave trader. <laughs> so that's it for Wynne. George, Jet George Jetson coming up next, and then catch a fire with us when we return on the other side of our next break. There'll be a thick 420 fog rolling into town as Toronto lights a fire to ignite thousands of marijuana joints all at the same time. It was quite a sight to see this past Easter Sunday 420 event in Toronto, and I have just a very few comments to make on that, but first. And now you'd better hurry too, George. You'll be late for work. Okay, in a minute. Did the morning paper come yet? Mm-hmm, here it is. Thanks. But you haven't much time, George. I know, I know. I'll just skip through the headlines. Hmm. President to ask for more taxes. So what else is news? <laughs> New show at the top of the moon. 
I wonder if it's any good. Whoa, 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 whoa. Can't take the kids to see that. Well, now, football coach predicts victory at tonight's game. I wonder what he's got to say. We'll murder them. George, you're late. Huh? Oh, oh, gosh. What time is it? Two minutes to 11. Gee, thanks. It's okay. Jumping Jupiter, I gotta get going. Aren't you gonna finish your coffee, Dad? Nope. Came out too strong this morning, but don't throw it out. Some pygmies from Africa may show up and want to dip their spears in it. <laughs> Bye. I'm pressed. I only want to use the phone. If I let you in, they'll all want to. It's chaos down there as it is. Why? What happened? Well, this fog is coming down the air shafts and along the tunnels. I'm well, sorry, then you live within groping distance. Which way? That way. Oh, Miss Craig. Quite a day, isn't it? it certainly is, Miss. There's just been a fog warning. The whole country's coughing it. That's Britain today. What we have, we share. You know, they say it's not what you call a true fog, more like a sort of heat mist. Heavier than your typical fog it is. Thanks for the breakdown. What the hell kind of fog only comes up to the fourth floor? God knows better than to come up here. This place is like the anti room to hell. Question is, how do we get home tonight? Yes, I know. Isn't it wonderful? I want to say a big hello to all our fans and listeners at Toronto's Vapor Central and congratulate you and the other organizers of Toronto's 420 pot event this past Sunday on Easter Sunday, no less. Looked like an amazing turnout, a sea of people. Within the camera view of what I saw, it appeared to be in the thousands, and when everybody lit up at the end of that countdown, it immediately reminded me of one of my favorite science fiction movies, very ironically and very appropriately called The Day the Earth Caught Fire, (laughs) which of course explains the fog. So I just couldn't resist doing what I did with that last audio bite we just heard, a mix of that video showing the 420 countdown with some carefully selected audio bites from the movie I just mentioned. A good movie, despite its very foggy and silly premise about climate change caused by man-made tilting of the Earth's axis. Whoever wrote the story premise clearly didn't understand or care about the relationship between mass, energy, and gravity because jumping up and down on the surface of the planet will not alter its axis or speed of rotation, nor would setting off any number of nuclear test weapons, which was the premise of that movie. But the rest of the story was very well done, given the premise. But in their own way, these 420 events have certainly set the world on fire in a very different sense. From Paul McKeever's comment attached to the clip that he just sent me, that we just heard, he said, Notice the way this video ends with the Canadian National Anthem. 
Amen. Thank you to all the peaceful protesters against Prohibition at today's 420 event in Toronto. Special thanks to Chris Goodwin, Aaron Goodwin, Matt Murnau, and the many others who, valuing their liberty, exercised it today in the face of, in the face of unjust laws. And to that I say a big ditto, absolutely. I absolutely did notice how it ended with the Canadian National Anthem. It was hard not to notice. What a positive and affirming message that sent. Incalculable. Law-abiding people who love their country but simply don't want their lawmakers to turn them into criminals. And meanwhile, back here in the conservatism of good old London town, Ontario in this case, I, I saw in the paper and heard on the radio, I guess they had between 12 and 20, I thought it was 12 at first, I see now in the paper there it says 20, police officers where only about 100 to 120 people were at the 420 event here in Victoria Park here in the city. And London police issued a no-tolerance warning prior to the event. No charges were laid and no problems arose. But gee, one to two cops per ten cannabis protesters? If this was an issue of public safety or about the prevention of violence, there's certainly no prior history of any such behavior or activity at such events, very unlike events where alcohol might be served. Uh, you know, to justify this ratio. London police have been very proactive in the prevention department, hoping to avoid another St. Patrick's Day riot, I guess, like the one that put London on the map a few years back. But, you know, compare that celebration of St. Patrick's Day with last Sunday's celebration of 420. Not the same thing. Given the the London police to protester ratio, I suppose that means that in Toronto there should have been at least two to three hundred police officers, if the crowd was say two to three thousand. What I saw, but I didn't see many police officers. Couldn't really see one. Perhaps the police in Rob Ford's Toronto have a different philosophy and set of priorities than London's police department. Clearly in London, the police presence was not about keeping the peace or maintaining order, but was placed in such numbers to threaten the, promoter, the, the, the protesters themselves with possible arrests should they choose to light up in their peaceful public protest occurring on the same day in cities around the world. They weren't there to protect the public from anything, but they were there to intimidate the protesters, sending a message, they say. I got it, but I don't think it's the message intended. Any way you look at it, it looks like the day of pot law changes are coming indeed. But don't count on things getting any better when the government gets involved because that was the basic lesson of the rest of our show today. Regulated pot sales under continued government prohibition of the same for private market will make things much worse for some people. For many, it would be better to leave things as they are until and unless there's a completely free market in that area. Only then will the fog clear because, hey, it's not like a normal fog, is it? <laughs> I noticed, too, that already that a lot of the pot-growing things that the government's getting into, they've already had some recalls, and somehow they're already estimating the size of the mer- medical marijuana market by 2024 is going to be $1.3 billion, according to the Free Press. I don't know where that money's coming from, from the handful of people who are supposed to be licensed for it, but I'm starting to think more and more that it, it's starting to look like we, the taxpayers, are going to be paying for that. Any case, I hope that's not the case. Great event in Toronto this past weekend. I know Mark Emery gets out of jail this summer, and perhaps next 420 is going to be a different event of a completely different nature if he's back on the loose. Anyways, that's it for this week. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW, and it's not like normal radio, is it? We'll see you next week. Until then, be, stay, do, act, and think right. We'll see ya. Fade into color, color into black and white. 
under the bedclothes. Everything will be alright. The Supreme Court is about to rule that gambling is not a crime. Tonight, the Ronan Martin Report takes you to the Supreme Court chambers where this historic decision will be made. My fellow justices, we are about to reach a very serious decision regarding the legality of gambling. Are you ready? Yes. yes. All right, then. Heads, it's legal. Tails, it isn't. <laughs>